Don't you love, now I love this weather. It's just a nice break. Being in Mexico last week, it was hot. Oh man, it was hot. And uh, so to be able to be here and enjoy a little coolness is just absolutely incredible. We have a couple from our church that, uh, it's a neat story how a guy uh, was kind of the town hooligan. Um, he actually said he doesn't remember too many sober days in high school. And uh, he gets saved. His life is transformed. Uh, his wife finds the Lord. And then she goes to work for us at the church in the office. And he works in manufacturing. They get called to go to the mission field. So they end up at uh, Indian Ministries based out of Phoenix, Southwest Indian Ministries based out of Phoenix. So they're out in Phoenix, and we send a team out to Phoenix a uh, week before last to be with them at uh, Camp for American Indians. And it was fascinating because everybody wanted to find out what's this dry heat thing. And, uh, and uh, he finally told them it was like 113 degrees or something. And he said, do you want to understand dry heat? You think it's dry? Stick your head in an oven. That is dry heat. And they all just about died out there when it did it. So to be able to, to be here in Michigan and enjoy a cool morning, this is great. Hey, everybody on your feet right now. On your feet. Up and at them on your feet. Let's stretch out a little bit because here's what happens. When the weather gets cool, we get a little bit lethargic, okay? We get a little bit lethargic. So I want you to take your hands, hold them high in the air over your head. Man, I knew y'all were Pentecostals. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Just kind of wave them a little bit. There you go. Then put them, put them down by your side. Stretch them out a little bit. Okay, I want you to say something after me today. Are we doing good, Kenneth? Okay, good. Good, good. Uh, I want you to say after me, I was in uh, Hawaii, and uh, everywhere I've been in the world, I've... Uh, Everywhere I've been in the world, I, I, I go because I speak places. I've never touristed too many places. But I was in Hawaii actually helping a church do strategic planning. And it was really interesting. The guy, before he sent his kids off to school, he said, stand before me. They're like fourth grade, sixth grade. He said, repeat after me. And here's what he did. He had this little mantra he did every single day with his kids. I'm going to be happy today. Say that together out loud. I'm going to be happy today. No matter what comes my way. No matter what comes my way. Whether the skies be sunny or gray. Whether the skies be sunny or gray. I'm going to be happy today. I'm going to be happy today. So here's these kids standing at the front door getting ready to go to school, and dad says, Okay, repeat after me. And they did it, and it became their kind of their family mantra. I don't know if he had kids that were negative or what the deal was. So let's just do that together. See if you can remember it, okay? I'm going to be happy today no matter what comes my way. Whether the skies be sunny or gray, I'm going to be happy today. Okay, are you ready? One more time. Get your big voices ready because the, oh, the sun's coming out. Isn't this something? So whether, whether it rains, whether it's sunny, no matter what it is, we're going to make a determination of heart that we're, just, we're going to control our attitude. I'm a big believer that attitude determines altitude. And uh, that's not new with me. Everyone's always said that, but I do believe it. That, but when, when we hire people, one of the things we look for is tell me about their attitude. Do you have a good attitude? Lou, do you have a good attitude? Yep. Boy, Bayshore soccer. I'm impressed. 
I'm impressed. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Hear what he said. Hear what he said. He said, I don't play it. I just get a kick out of it. Oh, that's bad. Okay, are we ready? Here we go. I'm going to be happy today, no matter what comes my way. Whether the skies be sunny or gray, I'm going to be happy today. Give yourselves a big hand, okay? Would you do that? You can be seated. You can be seated. So today's going to be kind of, with me all day, it's going to kind of have a unique theme to it. So lest you think that I'm losing my senses, uh, what we're going to do this morning is really going to link a lot to what I'm going to do tonight. So you all are going to be at the head of the class tonight. I'm really looking forward to tonight. Um, The Lord kind of rearranges schedules and I don't come in with just, you know, here's what we're going to do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We just try to sense what the Spirit of God wants. And so it just so happens that His meticulous providence that this morning and tonight are going to get linked together. And so just understand, I think this is a little bit maybe of Holy Spirit strategy to to get us ready. What we're going to work on is this whole thing of family. We're going to work on this whole thing of family. Now, first of all, before some of you groan, um, here's the drill. Here's the way it works. All of us, every single one of us, is a part of a family system. Now, you may be here and you say, I'm single, nuts. Uh, I have a, a gal that works for us who's single, and I was getting ready to do a whole family study, and she said, ah, Dave, I just groan on these things. And, uh, and I said, give me, give, me, give me time. Tell me if you groan at the end of it. Because every one of us is a part of a greater family system, even if we're single. We have nieces, nephews. We have, we have parents. Maybe our parents are gone, but you are a part. And sometimes our family systems redefine themselves a little bit. They, they take on a measure of friendships that we have. So nobody gets a pass as we're going to work on this one today. Nobody gets a pass. In fact, God has positioned you in these things called families. Someone said, yeah, God gave me my family, but I'll choose my friends. You know, and it's kind of like I got stuck on the one end, but I'm going to have what I want on the other end. But so we're going to work on this thing of families. Now, families take on some interesting dynamics. Um, if you want to ju- a head start, just go ahead and turn to Nehemiah 4, because you're going to see Nehemiah, the, the, the leadership genius of Nehemiah, does not just pertain to project leadership, which if any of you work in a world where you've got projects and you've got to manage people and systems and strategies, absolutely genius. What he does is absolutely genius. If you're a part of a group or an organization, we'll probably work tomorrow a little bit on this whole team thing a little bit. Absolutely genius. But I do think the hidden component of Nehemiah is in chapter 4, where he does this little family gig. And it's absolutely fascinating to me how he pulls this thing off. So that's kind of where we're going to go, so kind of position yourselves there. Now, we live in a day and age when families are under incredible threats. Incredible threats. Christy called our daughter yesterday. It was the first day of school uh, for her. She works on a balanced calendar, and we're doing more and more of that in Indiana, where now schools, actually yesterday, a lot of our schools started. Everybody goes, oh, man, August, early, and you're starting. I don't know how you guys are doing here. I know Michigan for a long time went after Labor Day, and now you can, you can get a waiver on it or something. We have friends in North Branch that they've got a waiver on their deal. They start a little earlier. Um, 
It's interesting, we try every year to take a week's vacation, and we have friends that have blessed us with a, a, using their place on Mackinac Island. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, thank you, Jesus. Uh, it, it's, 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 a, it's, a sweet, it's a sweet gig. I do it, you know, I suffer for the Lord. And, uh, and so we always, we, we kind of notice that, that Labor Day thing up here, you know, that it all just kind of turns on Labor Day. They walk the bridge Labor Day, and then they walk to school the day after, and that's kind of how it works up here. But families, we, so, so Christy calls Kim and says, hey, how's it going? With, she said, you know, I think I'm going to have a good year. She teaches first grade, and it, she said, I can always tell in the first week the type of year it's going to be, how, how, how the students are going to behave. And one of the things I like to do is I like to go down once a year, if I can, and just sit with her, with her class. And they don't let me go very often because she said it just adds one more kid to the class. And I, I think we can have fun. And I, I do stuff with them. And she said, it is not good when you show up in my class. So, but when I go, I like to go. And I like to see the family structures that are there. And it just blows my mind. It just blows my mind. Uh, I would say a third of the kids come from a normal, traditional family structure that we'd see it. A third of the kids come from a, a non-traditional family structure and a third of the kids, we can't figure out what's going on. Uh, I did something in our church a while back. Um, are there any school teachers here? Anybody teach school? Okay. Oh, you're my heroes. Uh, and I say that really because it's a war zone. It is a stinking war zone. Our teachers today are asking to do what's been done for years, but only this time they tied their hands behind their back. And they took away the power to discipline, the power to lead. In fact, a week from Sunday in our service, we'll just stop everything in the service, and I'll bring all the teachers, all the administrators, all the school bus drivers. We'll bring them right up the front, and we'll lay hands on them. And we'll say, well, you are now our missionaries going to the front lines. Well, what I did is I, I invited administrators, principals and administrators, to come and let's meet together and talk about life in schools today. And I got to tell you, I was blown away. I mean, the stuff they told me. And I said, how can we come alongside you? What can we do? One principal said, here's the deal. And I don't know how it is in Michigan, but in Indiana, everything's test uh, results. Uh, yeah, yeah, you got to have these good test results. And you benchmark, and then they redid all the pay based upon performance of the class for the teachers. And some of that's not necessarily bad, but I don't want to get involved in the politics of it. In Indiana, it's been pretty radical, the changes that have happened. And I'll just let you decide whether they're good or bad. But the principal said to me, he said, he, he, let me give you a good example. He said, teacher was in a classroom the other day and, and called me to come in. I came in and there was a student hiding underneath their desk, a second grader hiding underneath their desk. The second grader hadn't had anything for breakfast, came in with dirty clothes, traumatized by the violence they'd seen in the home, and the principal says, my school is going to be judged by how well I'm able to improve that child. He said, I don't have a chance. I don't have a chance. He said, if you could see the things that happen. And it just kind of broke my heart when they started doing this. So I let these guys come in all the way from high school principals, all the way down. I just said, I, said, I just want to hear your world. I want to hear your world. And I came away with this thing of, of um, our problem is not an education problem. Our problem is a family systems problem. And what we're doing is we're trying to solve it with education. I love education, it's great. 
But I, I began to notice, I noticed something when I went to one of our classrooms the other day. I noticed, and I recognize now there, there, are, there are laws on touching students and what you can do and can't do. I saw more students that just wanted to go to a teacher and get a hug. Can I get a hug? Can I get a hug? The uh, death of the male in the, in the classroom was a big deal because I kept hearing principals tell me, we need men to step up. We need male teachers. We need men to step up and present a strong male image because in a sense, we need a certain percentage of those to keep the balance in the classroom because these students only see dads as either absent or abusive. Males, absent or abusive, they don't see it. So my radar is really high on this thing of families right now. You might sense a little bit sometimes when I preach that I can just kind of, families, I just kind of want to grab people and say, come on. Uh, we're not in Mayberry anymore, you know. It, it, it's a whole new world, and we've got to gra grab it. Uh, I just exchanged a message this morning. Uh, we, had a, we had a kid, two stories real quick, and then we'll jump in. We had a, 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 a high school student who was the star athlete in his high school. In the state of Indiana, he won, I believe it was the Trestor Award for the outstanding football player. Took his uh, quarterback on his football team, took him to the state championship game, uh, played great college basketball, white kid from, uh, from our area who God gave him this burden to go into the inner city of South Bend, uh, right to where it's tough, and gave him a burden to start a program mentoring inner city kids. And it has become one of the most fascinating things for us. And what, what they're discovering is, is, is they're bringing in mentors to do life on life with these students, not just to go in and feed them or tutor them, but to do life on life. And, and Corey and Allie Lance, uh, she's, a, she's actually a Michigan gal from Davidson, uh, are just doing this incredible job. They just took their lives. He has his MBA, Master's of Business. She has her Master's of Ministry. And here they are. They bought a house in the inner city. They bought a house in the inner city. They're, they both come from families that have some means. And everybody said, what in the world are they doing? In fact, an inner city pastor came to me and said, Dave, I think they're stupid for doing what they're doing. He said, I minister in the inner city, but I have to live outside the inner city. And Corey said, you know what? Uh, Jesus came in incarnate, dwelt among them. And so we're going to move in, and we're going to try to see if we can change the structure. And now what they're starting to do is they're starting to work with families. I wish I could take you to, the, we talked about this, Devon and Western Avenue in Chicago. In Devon and Western Avenue in Chicago it is the craziest thing you're ever going to see in your life. If you ever go to Chicago, I've been to Chicago for years and years and years. I had never been to that intersection of Devon and Western. Chicago has little Italy, little, you know, China, all these little things. Devon and Western is where the world collides all at one intersection. With all, I, When I go there, I think I'm in Nairobi. I think I'm in Calcutta. It's all right there. And there's a guy by the name of Bob Andrews. Uh, Bob actually has his PhD from Loyola, who got burdened to go in and live incarnationally at that place dealing with refugee families. Refugee families. There's a big difference between immigrants and refugees. You gotta understand how this thing works. Uh, if you ever have the chance to ever hear Bob Andrews, you gotta hear him. It's a fascinating story of a guy who just simply went in. In America, and in, in Chicago, it, refugees land at Devon and Western for some reason. Bosnians, uh, all these, and here's what he's beginning to discover. He's beginning to discover if he can touch the family system, he gets all the outlying parts of it. And it's been so much fun 
for us to come alongside of Bob and Lynn as they work there in the, in the inner city and do on those families. I, I just, if you ever get a chance to have, invite Bob to Bayshore or just speak once or twice, he will, he will rattle your cage, and it's not theory. He's doing it. He lives incarnationally right there. In fact, we rented a building for Bob, uh, Devon Oasis. It, 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 it's the center where they love people. And uh, it is right next door to a Muslim prayer center. And then there's, there, it's really interesting when you go to his place, right next door is this Muslim prayer center for men. And then the next building is the Muslim prayer center for women. And I stand out in the street and I look and these guys are just going in and out of this place, in and out of this place all the time. And Bob just loves to love him. He never apologizes for Jesus, never. He said, we're not going to talk about some soft gospel. He said, we're going to tell them that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And Jesus Christ can change their lives. People say, are you out to convert us? He said, no, I'm just out to introduce you to Jesus. He'll do the work. I don't do the work. But Bob is beginning to discover with the Rohingya people. This is just so fascinating. These are, there's a people group in Myanmar who have never had a country who are persecuted. And Bob and Lynn have gotten favor with the Myanmar people, the Imans. And he's gotten favor with them. And he simply says, now we're watching God move in in families. And evangelism is taking place in families. Um, oh, I, there's tons of stories I can tell you how we're doing, how family transformation is happening. And we're beginning to understand that the greatest tool for biblical evangelism, the first tool is the family. That mom and dad become the family pastor, the family evangelist, as they train and they build that in their families. So I am just, a, there's this whole thing that's happening in me that is moving more and more toward a family theology. And, and, and seeing how we can do, how we can build healthy families. Okay, so let's shift. I want to take you into what Nehemiah did that is an amazing strategy. Are you ready? Chapter 4, here we go. Here we go, Nehemiah chapter 4. Now chapter 4 is a chapter of great uh, stress, opposition, difficulties. Uh, things are going bad. In chapter 4, the opposition comes against him. People are saying, my family isn't being cared for. Um, I want you to start, let's start Nehemiah chapter 4. Let, let, let's just look at verse 14. Now, I'm going to read this out of the NIV. It might be a little different than your NIV, but if you have an NIV Bible, let's just read this together out loud. Nehemiah 4, 14, okay? Because this is kind of the crux verse that we're going to drive off of as we get into this today. Ready? Nehemiah 4, 14. Reading together. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Literally what he says, he teaches a principle, and this is on your note sheet there, the never forget, never forget, great leadership begins at home. Great leadership begins at home. Now Nehemiah is this masterful treatise on leadership. But the thesis that he's gonna do now is, he says, guys, we've gotta lead at home, and we've gotta lead well as we lead at home. Now what he is going to do he is, going to, he is going to take on three deadly enemies that he's going to face as he's going to lead. Uh, on your sheet, those enemies, uh, just, I'll just give them to you. They are F is fatigue, 
D is discouragement, and F is fear. So let's just, let's just put these up here. Uh, fatigue, fatigue, discouragement, and fear. Now let your eyes graze back into chapter four, okay? Let your eyes graze back in chapter four. And look in chapter four what happens because something happens in this whole process of trying to build the wall. Something happens. Uh, chapter four, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry, incensed, he ridiculed the Jews. In the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Can they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring these stones back to life from heaps of rubble? burned as they are. Now, what you're going to see is, uh, go to verse 10. So all of a sudden when he says this, the people now begin to sense this discouragement. The people say the strength of the laborers is giving out. There is so much rubble, we cannot rebuild the wall. In a sense, what they said, I've got this impossible, impossible task. Hang with you, I'll get you all your blanks. Impossible task. I've got these impossible tasks to get done. So, when it looks insurmountable, three things happen. Three things happen. Fatigue sets in. I'm tired. The challenge looks greater than my ability. Sounds like a parent of a preschooler, doesn't it? Man, how are we going to do this thing? What are we going to do? Discouragement sets in, and all of a sudden fear sets in, and we start to think about the worst consequences that can happen, worst case scenario that could take place. What in the world are we going to do? Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get your teams ready. I want you to get ready to huddle. We're going to do a little more huddle work today than we've done in the past. So find three, four people, not more than four because you won't have enough time to get it done. Find somebody you can go. Just, just look and say, hey, come with me. We're going to do this thing. You can do this thing together. I'm going to force you into community, okay? I'm going to force you to do it. So find somebody, all the introverts, wait for an extrovert to say, hey, come in with me. Okay? Turn around, find the person behind you. Get somebody. Are you huddled up? Are you huddled up? Are you ready? Got your group? Okay. Okay, here you go. Got your groups? You're all ready? Here you go. What happens to you when you get tired, what happens to you when you get tired? What's it like when you get really tired? What happens? What happens when you get fatigued? When you get discouraged? Talk to each other a little bit. What happens? Sixty seconds. 
Okay. Bring her back. What are the normal things you do when you get tired, you get discouraged? What, just, just give, me, give me single words. I'm going to kind of crabby. And, and everybody said amen. Crabby, irritable. Sleep, just want to sleep. Retreat. Retreat. Oh, that's a good one. Lethargic. Impatient, very impatient. Hungry. Pessimistic. Oh, that's good. Throw in the towel. We're going to give in. Get dumb. Dumb. Oh, that is. Oh, the dumb is really good. That, you're speaking my language. When I get tired, I do really dumb things. I do really dumb things. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, that is good. You get down on other people and you yell. You get down. I can tell you this. When I get down on the team I work with, I'm tired. I'm tired. Sometimes I'll just simply say, Dave, shut the door in the office. I work with an open door policy. Just come in. You don't need to make appointments. If you work here, if the door's open, come on in. And I say, it's time to shut the door. And then it's time to get alone. Uh, sometimes we have, a, we're, we have a beautiful amphitheater. It's quite a deal on the property. We do our baptism services outside there. And sometimes I'll just, I'll just put on some music, put on headphones, and walk out there. Don't be around people. Don't let Dave near people because he's, he's tired. He'll say something he regrets. Um, okay, well, look at this. So they're discouraged, they're down. Okay, now we are going to add insult to injury. We're setting up where we're going. Hang with me. Look at verse uh, 13. Look at verse 13. How do we add insult to injury? Now just, just look at that real quick. When you look at verse 13... Why does a situation go from bad to worse? Can you pick it off at all? Can you kind of maybe read between the lines there and sense anything? I mean, it's one thing to have your enemy assault you. It's another thing to have your friends come after you when you're tired and down. And so what happens in verse 13, their fellow Jews, actually it's really verse 12. I'm sorry. It's verse 12. You guys are all looking, saying, where is he at? He's tired. Uh, verse 12. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us, what's, what's, the, what's the multiplier? Ten times. <laughs> With friends like you, we don't need enemies. Told them ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So all of a sudden now, you've got this thing caught in a, in a downward spiral. Their reality is just going down fast. And, and the, 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 the task is too large, they're tired, they're discouraged, they're full, full of fear. So what is the strategy, what's Nehemiah's answer to the strategy? What's his leadership answer to try to pull this thing out of the cesspool? To pull this thing out of this tornado, this, this vortex that's just going down the toilet? What's his answer? He says, I'm going to post you by families. I'm going to post you by families. That's in your blank sheet there. Verse 13. Verse 13. Who's got the big outside voice this morning? Can read verse 13 for me. Read verse 13. Here we go. Somebody. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open spaces, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. I love it. He said, I, I made it. He makes a tactical move. This is really good leadership 
Because at a critical moment, he makes the right move, and he said, I'm going to station them. I like where it said, what translation is that? ESV. ESV. By clans, uh, families. He places them by a relational component. And he said, this is going to be the strategy. Now, I'm going to give you three or four minutes to go do some work that's ill-defined. There's not a right answer necessarily that I'm looking for. What is the magic by putting them in families? This is obviously, if you study the book of Nehemiah, this is a huge turning point. We're going south. This is kind of like a Uzziah headed the wrong way on this project. And all of a sudden he flips it with one battle plan strategic move. Uh, do any of you enjoy like Gettysburg or battlefields and stuff? They're fascinating. Um, I was taking some postgraduate work down in, in Tennessee and... Um, um, Lookout Mountain, Chattanooga. Oh, that was fun. I would take breaks at night, and I, I was by myself, and so I'd drive up there, and I'd read these strategies of how they move troops, and they would use fog, and early morning come in, and hide here, and all these little strategic moments. I believe that this may well have been one of the most strategic moments in the whole book of Nehemiah to accomplish the impossible. He posted them by families. Why do you, just without, without knowing history, just, just, just out of your brain, why do you think that was such a genius move? Okay, I want you to go ahead right now. Just in your groups, I want you to get two or three reasons that you say that would be a genius move because of X, Y, Z, okay? Go after it. Why did it work? Let me, let me pull you back. Got to pull you back. You guys are, this is incredible. I heard some amazing stuff. Uh, I just tried to stick my head in periodically to stuff. I heard some amazing stuff. Um, boy, this is good. In fact, I'm, I'm writing these down mentally as you're doing this. I never thought about that. I never thought about Why do you think this strategy just became genius? What, what about it was so good? What about it? You would know who needs to have the sword and who needs to have the shovel. You'd say, oh, don't give him a sword. <laughs> and, and you'd say, uh, you know, you, you, that's, you, you, there's, there's a higher level of knowledge of positioning people. Great stuff. Guys, you had one over here that was pretty interesting. Okay, there was this, they probably had families where there was marriage, and so not only would they... There was, there was this big protective thing because that's my brother-in-law over there. That's my cousin over there. So I, it feels bigger. Somewhere in the back over there, they, they said it really, they said it really good. Uh, how was it you'd be willing to go to the mat? Go to the mat for your family. You'll, you'll put it all on the line for your family. You'll put it all on the line for your family. It's interesting. Oh, genius. Genius. That one came up over here in this group right over here. They said that in family systems, leadership has emerged and it's already kind of there and you'll step up and you'll take that leadership. What other, why is this so genius? It works 
right. The family family's going to kind of know. It's going to have a history. Give me some others. They had a reason to fight. It, it, uh, <laughs> this, this one is so good. The issue now is not building the wall. The issue is saving my wife's life. And all of a sudden, you, you make that the stakes, I'm in. I'll do it. You now have pushed directions down to someone that you know, and maybe there's a, a level of trust that, you know, my brother shouldn't throw me under the bus. Nehemiah might, but my brother wouldn't hopefully do that. Oh, this is really good. The multiple generations working together. Boy, we could go along on that one, couldn't we? A long ways. One of the things I'm kind of concerned about that, that we're struggling with is too much segmenting of generations. And how can the older women teach the younger women if they're not in the same room? And how can we do this thing? And we're struggling with that. Having multiple services that can tend to divide generationally has a real big downside to it. It's got an upside to it, but it's got a big downside to it. I hadn't thought about that one in that context. That's good. Somebody over here. Yep. Posted them by families. ownership there's something about ownership it's mine I really care we had a uh, we had a, one of our guys on staff went overseas and he, he was just his world was rocked and uh, I'm guys I'm really big on having a heart for the nations we talk about local regional global impact it's just kind of how I am wired and what we believe is Jesus said Jerusalem Judea Samaria ends of the earth and so we, we do that but people always view something abstract that they never experienced. This guy comes back, he stands up and said, everything just got personal for me. When I held the little baby who was rescued out of a pit latrine and I saw the eyes that were maggot infested, it just got personal. It just got personal. And all of a sudden now it's personal because this is my family I'm fighting for. Somebody else had a hand up somewhere here. Yeah, go ahead. It's great, and thanks for bringing that one up. What he did was strategic in nature, but as he took them and posted them at the most vulnerable spots where the job wasn't getting done, and basically saying, the job either gets done or you're dead. I mean, that's the way it is. So the motivational factors were very, very high. The risk was high as he put them at the exposed places. They were not doing busy work. This was no such thing as busy work. This was very purposeful in what they did. Do you, do you kind of begin when you study this and look at it, you say, this is genius. This is genius. You know, Bill Gates isn't even this genius. I mean, the, the greatest, uh, Peter Drucker wasn't probably even this smart. I mean, 
These guys, this is just genius move because what he's going to do is he's going to say, I'm going to make this all about family. And he takes it and he breaks it down. Um, okay, so he posted them by families. That's a blank for you there. Here's, here's another one. Uh, the battle cry. The battle cry, and I, I abbreviate the battle cry. And this, this is the battle cry we do. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your family. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your family. Now in the text what it says is fight for your brothers, your sisters, your mother, and he breaks it down by members. But the, the genius of it is, is now the fight is on for your own family. Now, let me just give you a couple, three things here to help you on this. Um, I'm, I'm gonna kind of just reduce these into points. He looks at them and the next one there is refuse to lose refuse to lose the battle for your family. Verses 15 to 18. Uh, who, who's got the big voice and wants to read verses 15 to 18? It's a big assignment, three verses, four verses. You can do it. Verses 15 to 18, big outside voice, take off. Let's all look at this together because what he's going to do is he's going to try to now to put steel in their backbone as they do it. Someone read this. We could have more fun with this paragraph, tearing it apart. Now what he does is, and this is a blank if you want to keep true on your blanks, is a picture of a sword in one hand and a shovel in the other. A sword in one and a shovel in the other. Now, this is really interesting. Um, okay, let me, let, me, let me just do a quick thing that bugs me in life. I am bugged when people a lot of times put me in what's called a binary argument. You have to either do this or this. And it's binary. I, I, I can't do it. And I say, no, 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 no. Uh, Jesus, people, there, there are people who are grace-based and Jesus is all about grace. And then there are people who are truth-based. No, I can have a Jesus that has two, grace and truth. Speak the truth in love. Don't get caught. A lot of times what happens is there are people who simply say it's all about the sword. It's all about the sword. There are people who say, no, it's all about the shovel. And what he does is this incredible picture of a balance. I'm going to do this thing with my family. You'll have fun with this one. With a sword, I will protect them. And with a shovel, we will work to accomplish what God has asked me to do. Don't get caught in binary arguments when it comes to, to family. When I work with young families, it says, well, are we going to do this or not this? Sometimes we have to find a way to have a shovel and a sword if we're going to do it. Um, you can do both. Uh, that's why I think I shared with you the other day, one of my life principles is out of Proverbs 21, 31. We shall prepare the horses for battle for the Lord gives the victory. We have our responsibility to make sure we've got the horses ready for battle. I can't stand up on a Sunday morning and get ready to speak if I haven't done my work of preparation. If I haven't battened down the hatches. By the way, I'll, I'll speak this Sunday at home. And Thursday morning is my lockdown time 
that always from about 7.30 till 12.30 is my final preparation. And when 12.30 hits on Thursday, I've got to hit the send button. They've got my notes. They use PowerPoint. Everybody knows what's going to happen. I can't ask God to bless what I'm going to share if I haven't done my part. We should prepare the horses for battle. And that's why I was up early this morning. It's Thursday. Everybody is back sitting, waiting for the button to be pressed because it's going to happen. And no matter where I'm at, I have got to do my part, my responsibilities. Um, it's really interesting. Christy and I, we travel together. I'm on the road a fair amount. And you wouldn't believe the number of Wednesday nights. She goes to bed pretty early. That I, I've, got, I've got to get my work done. I can't just stand up and flap my jaw or get a Saturday night special or something. I've got to, I've got to have a message ready and prepared. I have to have my heart ready and prepared. And there's a lot of Wednesday nights we'll be on the road. The only place I can go in a motel, be alone, is the bathroom. You'd be surprised how many sermons have been composed on the throne. I mean, it's just... I mean, I just have to sit there and I take my laptop in. I've got it. I, I, have, to, I, I have actually kneeled beside a bathtub. And I'm not trying to make myself be a hero. But I can't ask God to bless if I haven't done my work. And I find far too many families that don't have a shovel. They don't have a shovel. They got a spear. But they're not willing to do the work. Doing the work of building healthy families is hard work. It's tough. You come home from work and you are dead tired and the little urchins come around. Uh, okay, we're grandparents. We have five grandkids um, from eight to, actually our oldest is, is just registering for college. You'll be a college freshman this year. And there are times that we, we, uh, we are blessed with them. And, uh, and they'll come <laughs> over and I'm thinking, man, I'm tired, you know. Can I do this? I love them to death, and they're a lot of fun. I love to ride bike with them and do things with them. But we basically said, you know what, we're going we're, we're gonna, to we're gonna have boundaries, but we're also going to be willing to get the shovel and really work to pour into their lives. If I could talk to, to, to some of you grandparents for a little bit, don't discount. You're not the parents. It's so much fun to sugar them up and send them home. Yeah. I love it. That is great. We're not the parents. We're not the ones that, are, that God's asked us to raise those kids. But God has asked us to love those kids and to pour into those kids. And I am so grateful for a grandmother that, that, that loved me. She was tough. She was hard. She was firm. But she loved me. And, and you can do it. For those of you parents, it's coming at you on all sides. I, I, I walk around here. I see some of you have three, four, five kids. And I'll, I'll see you walking with those little ones. And I just say, oh, Jesus, bless them. Give them energy. How some of you people do it. It's hard. It's tough. I watch Justin over here when his wife is, is playing the piano, and she's doing it, and I see him over here with his daughter. And I sit there and say, God bless that man for pouring into that daughter. And he'll sit there with her, and he's kind of teach her how to worship and do motions to songs. And I'm saying, you know what? She's going to always grow up remembering mom at the piano, and she's going to remember dad held me in his arms and did it. Sword and a shield. Sword and a shield. Why? Because they're protecting their family. There's a picture of a sword and a shield, a sword in one hand and a shield in the other. Now, you can have so much fun with this. If we were, if we were in your home doing a small group Bible study, we'd have, what, what, what is the sword? Ah, what is the sword? Yeah, the Word of God. Yeah, the Word of God. What is the shovel? You could talk about what it really means to shovel. That's the hard work. You'd have so much fun with this. I really challenge you to go ahead and use your imagination and have fun. Number two, number two, 
uh, use the power of together. The power of together. Verse 19 and 20 is amazing. Um, verse 19 and 20 is amazing. Someone want to read this big outside voices, verse 19 and 20? Okay, now this is where it gets really fun. Um, the power of together. The problem are these two words on your sheet, widely separated, widely separated, widely separated. What happened was in doing the process of building the wall, the expanse was so great that at times of building, they got physically separated from each other, physically separated from each other. And the separation diminish their ability to encourage each other to lift up each other. Now, hang on, guys. I am big, big, big. I'm a big local church guy. I believe in the local church. I believe, I, I know people say it's done, it's over. This is God's bride. He created this because he wants to pull us together. He wants, you have something to give me that I desperately need. And I have something to give you that you desperately need. The, that's how the body works. And what happens is, when we get together, when we come together, we can encourage each other. Do you know, I watched this last night. I sat right over here, second row. I watched this last night. I watched when you sang. It had an octane. When you sang Wonderful Grace of Jesus, you sang that awakening song the other night. New to me. And I thought, whoa, something is happening in the room. I thought the floors are going to shake. I didn't realize you guys had that much octane in you. You know, I mean, it was like, whoa, what happened? If you walk out there with two people and you're singing that out there on the road, it wouldn't have the impact you had when you came here. Why? Something happens when we gather together. Our gatherings do something to us. One accord. This, this, this is the book of Acts, where they came together. And all of a sudden, there's this thing of we can lift up each other's hands and, and we can encourage each other. Now, that's where Paul said to the church at Corinth, y'all are a stinking mess because your gatherings do more harm than good. You see, that's when it's not working. But when you guys, the encouragement happens. All of a sudden, last night in the memorial service, that was touching to me. I didn't know any of those people. And I sat there and a big old tear came down my face. Your son. I thought, wow. When the testimony was shared, why? Now, if I would have been all by myself reading a book about your son, it would have been just a guy. But all of a sudden, I saw you, and I saw you in the choir, and I saw you here. The gathering does something to us. It does something to us. Oh, settle down, Dave. Um, we've, we've, we've got to recapture this in our bodies. And it's not about mass. There are huge churches that are sick and there are small churches that are healthy. I get so tired of people who say, well, we're only 50 people or 100 people. Listen, you can be five foot and healthy. You can be six foot six and six and sick. So don't play the game with me that size is good and small is bad. That's not at all. In fact, sometimes it's proven that your baptism rates proportionally are higher in smaller churches than they are in big churches. So don't be so puffed up if you're a part of a big church somewhere. Not all it's cracked up to be. But our gatherings need to do this. 
When we come in to gather into the body, we ought to lift up each other. We ought to encourage each other. As a kid growing up in a church of 80 people, the Hinkle family would come in. The Ingersons would come in. Our gatherings were good because it was just kind of like every Sunday. It was kind of like a family reunion. And then to invite other people to join the family. And he said, your problem is you're widely separated. Now, here's what's happened. Here's what's happened. Okay. Um, real quick. A phenomenon has taken place in our society of isolation. And it's what I call the death of the front porch. The death of the front porch. Now, let's be honest with this. We don't all know our neighbors very well. You may. A lot of us don't even know who lives five houses each way from you. Our life is taken on isolation. And what we've done is we've created faux intimacy and faux community, fake community. And in a sense, Facebook can do that. I'm a Facebook guy. I'm on Facebook. I use it. I love Messenger. I called India this morning on Messenger. I, I, I love the technology. But I have to be cautious that I don't create fake community, faux community. And you know how you're going to do that? You're going to have to come together. You're going to spend time together. Our lives are too full. They're just too full. We've got all these activities, but we don't have this thing where we're really knowing each other. We're really caring about each other. And he said, I'm going to bring you together. The problem is you're, you're separated. The answer is let's come together. And can I tell you this in your family? Can I challenge you? Not as a guy who mastered it, as a guy who should have. I should have laid down more guidelines with our kids. Simply said there will be some sacred times when our family will be together. You're not going to Bob's house. You're not going over to Mary's place. I know, and, 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 and I share your angst. I know as I work even with our grandkids, the calendar rules their lives. I got soccer practice. I got swimming practice. I'm in 4-H. I got this. I got that. I think maybe what we need to do is simply say, hey, let's declare a sacred moment. I took our entire family this year to, to Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge. I said to them a year ago, I said, you know what your Christmas gift's going to be this year? Your Christmas gift is we're all going to spend one week together in this place, and we're going to do it. And I think I almost wanted to say, and I'm going to confiscate your phones. Yeah. You know, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and I'm as bad as the next person, so I can't, I can't make out like I'm not. But we had more fun. We just had more fun because our lives are so separated, and we've got to come together. Some of you that are older, you think that younger people don't want to be with you, you're fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself. They want to learn from you. The number one thing I see as a pastor is women who are probably uh, 22 to 45 or up who simply say, I wished I had an older woman who would pour into my life. I wished I had an older woman who would pour into my life. I'm just hungry for an older woman. What was it like to go through this thing? What was it like to have young kids? How'd you handle this? How'd you do it? Men are less... They want it, but they socially are so isolated, they don't know how to ask for it. They don't know how to ask for it. It's just us here. Uh, can I talk to my generation people? I want, I want to go home and we'll all still be friends, so I'm gonna, but I am going to crowd you. I am noticing that my generation is just, is just flipping off a switch and saying, we're out of here. We're out of here. We're done. We're just through. Well, it's 
Yeah, we don't, we, we don't, yeah, it's our fault. We don't, we don't like it. We don't like your music. Don't like your hair. Don't like how you're doing life. Don't like what's going on. We're, ju we're, we're just done. And sometimes, sometimes we, we, we have chosen to exit. The death that kills me, I'm saying too much, but let me just have my moment, okay? The death that kills me in the local church is a death of spiritual eldership. I'm not talking about roles and formal power. I'm talking about apostolic leaders, men who step up, who are wise, 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 and who say to everybody, let's, let's be wise as we do this. Let's be wise as we do this. And I'm noticing a generation that is either angry or absent. It's not good. It's not good. So I feel better. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Okay, uh, the, use the power of to gather. That verse 19 is really something. Boy, we could take a thousand ways on that, couldn't we? The work is extensive and spread out. We are widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. You know what I think what Nehemiah did? I think Nehemiah had this thing where he could read the gauges of fatigue, discouragement, and fear in the family. And he'd say, get out the trumpet. Come on. It's time for us to just get together and love on each other and encourage each other. Let me give you the last one. Here we go. Verses 21 to 23. Now, I truly do have to have someone read this because I noticed this morning in my Bible that the solution. Always keep your, the solution is come together. Thank you. Come together. Come together. Did you guys know that I'm a, I'm a pyromaniac? Um, I love fires. I love fires. I just love fires. Anybody here love fires? Anybody here like fireworks? Oh, man, let's blow them up bigger and better. Fourth of July, I went and got all the cash I could find. I said to my son, take the grandkids down and buy everything you can find that we can blow up. And we just blew up. I love fire. We went at our house. He does fireworks. You could be my best friend. Oh, where have you been all my life? We did something at our house a while back. We uh, screened in our patio, and then I went and we built a, a fire pit. And we did it pretty nice. It fits really nice. It's all, it's all on, but there's a big fire pit. And I just love, I just love making a fire. I'll get up sometimes early, 6 o'clock in the morning. I'll go out and have a morning fire. And I'll just take my Bible out there, and I'll just sit by. I just love a fire. Now, I'm not always the best at starting them. I did learn the other day that uh, you better be wise when you start them because I couldn't get it going. I thought, well, I got gas. And uh, <laughs> charcoal lighter fluid is much better. Uh, um, you know what I've discovered, though? You know what I've discovered, though? At night, if I want to put out a fire, it's pretty easy to do. I just take all the logs and I roll them apart from each other. That'll preach. That'll preach. And that's what's happening in the body of Christ. They're all rolling apart from each other, and the fire's going out. Okay, here's the last one. I wish I, could, I, wish I had my iPad. I could show you the cover screen thing. The screensaver thing is my fire pit with a big fire on it because that just juices me up. Okay, here we go. 
uh, verses 21 to 23. I can't read this for you because I noticed this morning a big hunk of it fell out of my Bible. Just kind of a little cut there. I love Nehemiah so much that it ripped and it's gone. So someone read verses 21 to 23, big outside voices. Hey, stop. Read that last sentence again. Read that last thing you just read. keep your work clothes on. That's your blank there. Always keep your work clothes on. Never, ever quit on your family. Never quit. Never quit. That phrase really got a hold of me when I read that. And what he does is, Nehemiah paints a picture of responsibility. And he's, <laughs> it just kind of blew me away. They slept with their clothes on. They slept with their clothes on. Because Why? Because of the urgency, because of the absolute urgency of the job that had to be done. The absolute urgency that said, I'm going to do it. Um, never, never, never give up. Here's, here's what I'm noticing is we are dangerously outsourcing our family responsibility to others. We're outsourcing it. I admire what our teachers do, but God never called teachers to be the primary raiser of children. God called parents. I love what youth pastors do. Man, I love, I love student ministries. These guys are absolutely incredible. But God never said to a parent, outsource the spiritual formation of your kids to a youth pastor. That is bogus. Use them to come alongside of what you're doing, but don't outsource it. And what I'm beginning to see and understand is that Americans operate on efficiency and effectiveness, but don't operate very strategically. And so one of the things we're really working hard to do, I'm working hard to do, is to simply say, hey, why don't you step up and do what God's called you to do. Step up and do what he calls you to do. So Nehemiah, in the process of building the wall, exhibits this incredible ability, this incredible ability to raise family leadership. And he teaches principles of family leadership to a group of people who are in the process of accomplishing a task. I wrote this down. Let me read it to you. I wrote this down. Don't give up on being courageous. Don't give up on doing the hard things. Don't give up on praying and encouraging your family. There will be rubs. There will be personality differences. There will be misunderstandings. 
It won't be easy. There'll always be a crazy aunt or a wild uncle. There may be a rebellious son, a strong-willed daughter. You will get discouraged, but don't be absent. Be present. Never quit. And don't forbid the battle cry. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your family. The battle cry together. Say it with me. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your family. One more time. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your family. Let me pray for you. Scripture just amazes me. Father, amazes me how a man like Nehemiah, the king's cupbearer, teaches us something about our family. And Lord, if I win the whole world for Jesus and fail at home, I'm a failure. Father, I pray for my family. Pray for mom and dad today as they struggle through this process of being 94 and 95. And Father, I pray for Pray for my brother and my sisters. Pray for Christy. I pray for Scott and Kim. Pray for those five grandkids, Mason, and McKenna, Maya, Trace, Jillian. Pray, Father, for those in my family tree who don't know you as Lord and Savior. I pray for that one father that's been the prodigal. Help me every single day to just continue to cry out, to stand in the gap for them. Father, I pray that you'd bring us together as greater families. I pray there'd be healing in families. Father, even amongst my friends that are here right now, some of them just need to experience some family healing. I pray for anyone that the enemy has tried to discourage today and has tried to make them feel like they're a big loser. I pray for those, Father, who are single who are here today who simply say, it kind of feels like an odd lesson for me, but Lord, I pray they would see their role in their family. I pray for the family that is non-traditional in nature. There might be a blended family. It's been a little hard and a little tough and different components aren't fitting together quite right. I pray healing. Father, I pray that you'd help us in a world that mocks the family, makes fun of the family, even redefines sexuality, who's a man and who's a woman, and does all kinds of silly things. Lord, I pray that we would anchor ourselves on the authority of the Word of God and we'd be people who are about fighting for our family. So our cry, Lord, is remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your family. Fight for your family. Now, Father, thank you for allowing me the opportunity to set the stage this morning for what I sense you want to do tonight as we kind of put muscle on this thing and answer the how do I fight for my family. And I pray you do a real work a deep work. Give us a great day here. Pray for Dr. Neff as he leads the next class, Lord. Thank you for his gifting, his passion. And I pray a blessing upon what he's going to teach and the other classes as well. Give us a great afternoon. And Father, may what we have here at Bayshore not be isolated to six or seven days of being together. Might it be a part of coming together in spirit throughout an entire year. Because the closer we are to you, the closer we'll be with each other. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.